0: Good morning. good morning, I'm Danny Martin, the pastor in residence here at Five Oaks Church. It's good to see all of you here today, good to see everyone online, good to be seen by you rather. Welcome everybody. God the Holy Spirit, he should not be, but quite often is misunderstood and controversial. Bible believing churches like our own. Depending on what part of the world you're in or what kind of church you're attending, you're likely to hear very different things about how our lives of God the Holy Spirit should look. In some churches, you'll meet a Christian walking around with his shoelaces untied, and you want to be helpful. Hey, your shoelaces are untied. He's like, yes, in my 5 a.m. prayer this morning, the Lord, through the Holy Spirit, did not reveal that I can tie my shoes today. (laughs) If you ever want someone to go away, just say something like that to them. (laughs) They will moonwalk out of there. In other places, you start talking too much about the Holy Spirit and a Christian's relationship with him and people get a little twitchy, get a little uncomfortable. Don't talk about the Holy Spirit so much. Haven't you heard of those weirdos who don't tie their shoes? We can't have our kids around extremists who don't tie their shoes, trying to get them off Velcro. <laughs> took a moment, took a moment. It. Many of us who've been around here for a while would probably say that at Five Oaks, when it comes to God the Holy Spirit, we like our shoes tied. So the challenge for Christians in a church like ours is more often not one of mysterious or strange or extraordinary spirit-filled excesses, but one of something I mentioned two weeks ago, quenching or extinguishing the leading of the Holy Spirit in our everyday lives. What I mean is summarized by pastor and author Francis Chan in his 2009 book, Forgotten God. He writes, while no evangelical would deny the Holy Spirit's existence, I'm willing to bet there are millions of church gro- churchgoers across America who cannot confidently say they have experienced his presence or action in their lives over the past year, and many of them do not believe they can. Our hope in this series is not to convince you to undertake Ludicrous measures to prove to God, yourself, and everyone else that you believe the Spirit is living and active in your life. We pray that we may help one another understand the ways in which we are already experiencing the Holy Spirit's presence and action in our lives. If we're following Jesus, we do experience the Holy Spirit. The question is not, are we relating to him? It is, how are we relating to him? Inasmuch as we may be legitimately quenching and grieving him, we call one another to account that we may, we may walk with him daily. The first text of several texts that we will be reading from today is Matthew three sixteen 16 through 4.1. Please open there with me in your Bible. If you need a Bible, there should be one underneath the seat in front of you in that bible it's page 967 967 while you're turning to 967 you might also want to put a bookmark in 184 Deuteronomy 8 so 967 and 184 in the pew bibles Deuteronomy 8 Matthew 3:16 I'll remind you that one of our core values at Five Oaks is that although the Bible is at times mysterious to us, it does not need to be a mystery. If we will commit to reading the Bible and asking God to form us through it, his Holy Spirit is ready and willing to do that. God desires to have a relationship with you and to show you the purpose and meaning of your life in his story. And one of the ways he does this is through regular disciplined reading of the Bible. Matthew 3.16, the baptism of Jesus by his cousin John the Baptist, it's the beginning of his ministry, we read, as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him, and a voice from heaven said, this is my Son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. If you're able and willing, please read aloud with me the prayer that's going to come up on the screen here. Almighty God, by your Holy Spirit, illumine the sacred page, we pray, that our minds may be opened to receive your word, our hearts taught to love it, and our will strengthened to obey it. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Holy Spirit, sent by the Father, just as you led Jesus, the Son, into the wilderness, you have called us to walk and step with you. In the same way that Jesus turned to you and your revealed word to conquer the enemy, let us also turn to it. In the same way that Jesus discerned your leading and followed, help us also to discern your leading and follow. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So the Holy Spirit leads Jesus into the desert wilderness to fast and endure temptation. This provides us a template for spiritual discernment and understanding the leading of God's Holy Spirit. It shows us that the Bible provides guardrails for understanding God the Holy Spirit's leading. Jesus is baptized. And the Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove to inaugurate his ministry. Immediately after, the same Holy Spirit leads Jesus into the desert wilderness to be tested by the devil. For 40 days, Jesus does not eat. Note in chapter 4, verse 2, the Bible only says he was hungry. Jesus did drink water. After 40 days of not eating in the desert wilderness... Jesus was alive, but certainly in rough shape. These 40 days mirror the 40 years the nation of Israel wandered in the wilderness after God rescued them from Egypt. We can't talk about it right now because it's a whole separate sermon. It's worth writing down. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus represents faithful Israel. He endured what Israel endured and succeeded where Israel failed. I'll say that one more time. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus represents faithful Israel. He endured what Israel endured and succeeded where Israel failed. So the devil tempts Jesus when he is physically at his weakest because that's what predators do. God the Holy Spirit drove God the Son into the wilderness to fast, not to eat. And the devil's first temptation is for him to abuse his miraculous powers so as to violate the fast that the Spirit drove him to. We read in Matthew 4, verse 3, The tempter came to him and said, If you're the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus replies by quoting the Bible in Matthew 4, 4. Jesus answered, It is written, in Deuteronomy 8, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. You might think, well, that's a cool clapback Jesus, but who cares? If you have the power to turn rocks into food and you're hungry, why wouldn't you? The answer comes from expanding Jesus' reference to Deuteronomy 8, 1 through 3. A technique of the ancient rabbis was to appeal to a single phrase from the scripture, but actually they're appealing to the whole story when they do this. It seems that's what Jesus is doing here. So go back to Deuteronomy 8. Moses is talking to Israel. And it says, starting in verse 2, Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way into the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you. In order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known. To teach you this, that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Jesus was called, like Israel had been called, to trust in God the Father's provision, The devil's temptation then was for Jesus to trust in his own power. Jesus discerned that the Holy Spirit's specific leading for him was to trust in the Father's provision, and it was confirmed by the biblical guardrails of Deuteronomy 8. Then the devil quotes a scripture to Jesus, which really gets my goat because it's one of my personal favorites, and I don't like the devil misquoting scriptures I like. Psalm 91, we read in Matthew 4, 6. If you're the son of God, the devil said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Here's something unsettling. The devil knows the Bible. The devil knows the Bible, better than we do. The devil can tell us what the Bible says. That does not mean the devil has the Holy Spirit. He tries to twist the Scripture's meaning to trip up Jesus, but Jesus knows better. He knows that Psalm 91 is not an all-expenses-paid promise from God that if you're a Christian, nothing bad will ever happen to you. And if something bad does happen to you, it's got to be because you weren't faithful enough. That's not true. Jesus was always faithful, yet he never sinned. He knew that the path that he started on during this trial in the wilderness would lead to his public execution on a cross. We read his response in Matthew 4 7. Jesus answered him, It's also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And in a last, perhaps even desperate attempt, the devil's final temptation in 4.8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give to you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And then the words of Psalm 91 immediately come true for Jesus. 411, the devil left him and angels came and and attended him. Even though the Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness in the first place, when he finds himself up against temptation, all three times he turns to the Bible Jesus' certainty of what the Holy Spirit had led him to do was contextualized by scriptural guardrails. He doesn't say, Holy Spirit, can you come back here for a minute? I need to pray to ask you whether or not I should worship Satan. Nor does he allow his physical feelings or his hunger to lead him. It was more important for him to trust in God's provision than to trust in his hunger. The Holy Spirit's leading works within the guardrails God has established in the scriptures. Therefore, there are certain things we just don't ever have to wonder about. The Holy Spirit will never tell you to sin. I mention this because the devil is real and he wants to mislead us. The world wants us to follow its ways, not God's. And our own bodies and minds want to do what we want to do. I've known a lot of pastors, and I've heard their stories. People do walk into pastor's offices and say that they have already decided that they are going to sin, and that because they have found a group of people who affirm them, and they personally feel at peace with the sin, they've decided to interpret it as God's approval. And they say things like, I really feel like the Holy Spirit is telling me it's okay. It makes sense that the wrong things feel good. If the wrong things felt bad, people wouldn't do them. That's the deceptiveness of sin. It's counterfeit goodness. The scripture does not contradict what the Holy Spirit led Jesus to do. And the scripture will not contradict what the Holy Spirit leads you to do. That's why Jesus said in our passage from two weeks ago, John 14, 17, the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. Truth. If there is a contradiction between us, and the Scripture, and the Spirit, it is not the Scripture or the Spirit that needs correction. It is we who need correction. The Holy Spirit will never lead you to go against God. He is God. When Jesus knew the Holy Spirit was leading him into the wilderness, he went. But even while he was there, he appealed to the scripture. Jesus' circumstances did not overshadow God's revealed truth. Neither do yours and neither do mine. So while we seek a deepening relationship with the Holy Spirit and a deepening sense of discernment, we must also continually drive between the guardrails. In a church like ours, I assume a lot of you are on board with me so far. So let's get to the fun part. Even with guardrails, God's leading sometimes looks weird or extreme. Many times, God has called people to do something that looks a little weird, or that they don't want to do, or some combination of the two. Francis Chan was already the well-known pastor of Cornerstone Community Church in Simi Valley, California, when he became a best-selling author with 2008's Crazy Love. He famously gave away most of the $2 million he received in book royalties to fund organizations that combated sex trafficking and promoted adoption. With the rest of the royalty money from book sales, he was able to refuse his senior pastor's salary. Now some of you are wishing Pastor Henry would write a best-selling book. (laughs) Under Francis Chan's leadership, Cornerstone grew from 20 people in a living room in 1994 to 6,000 in a megachurch in 2010. The church was so financially stable that it donated upwards of 50% of its budget to supporting missionaries and charitable causes. So Francis Chan shocked the Christian world when, in 2010, he resigned. More shocking, it shouldn't be, but more shocking was that there was nothing suspicious going on. Nothing weird with the royalties, no cooked books, no spiritual abuse going on at church, no marital failure, no cover-ups, no smoking guns. The church was growing. The finances were all above board. Encouraged by his wife and with four kids in tow, four, the unemployed Francis Chan traveled to places where following Jesus is dangerous. So that after seminary, after pastoring for 20 years and building a megachurch in Los Angeles that still exists, he could learn from uneducated house church pastors who, if you had asked them, would probably have said they needed to learn from him. He describes it as a season of uselessness. He was exhausted by his resignation and the pretty public hullabaloo surrounding it. Why would an overnight millionaire pastor at the peak of his influence suddenly up and leave? Part of the answer concerns a second book he published before his resignation. It's the book we quoted from at the start of this message. It's called Forgotten God, reversing our tragic neglect of the Holy Spirit. Francis and his wife discerned through the Holy Spirit that God was leading their family to leave their large influential church in SoCal and to start a house church movement in inner city San Francisco, which they are still doing today. And by the way, I've done street ministry in inner city San Francisco. I would not want to be called to that full time. Okay, I'd be like, Moses, Lord, send somebody else, please. Speaking of people who probably wish God had sent someone else, the prophet Ezekiel. In Ezekiel 4, God tells the prophet Ezekiel that as an object lesson to the rebellious people of Judah... Ezekiel was to lay on his side for over a year. God even goes so far as to specify how much bread and water Ezekiel was to consume during this time. With this added twist, Ezekiel was to use his own leavings to fuel the fire for cooking his daily bread. And when he objects to having to do this, god replies in ezekiel 4 15 very well i will let you bake your bread over cow dung instead if you've ever wondered whether or not god has a sense of humor this is your sign (laughs) ezekiel four i don't care what language you speak i don't care what year it is there's no time or place in history where people would walk by that and say that's normal and this sort of thing isn't just limited to Jesus himself or big names from the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit's work in God's people always looks weird to outsiders. Turn over to Acts chapter two in your Bibles. It's page 1091 in the Pew Bibles. Acts chapter two, if you need, it's four books to the right of Matthew. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. The Christians are waiting for the Holy Spirit. Jesus told them to wait. When the day of Pentecost came, the Christians were together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire That separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. When it talks about other tongues here, it's talking about actual languages. In Greek, the word for tongue can also mean language. Later in the New Testament, when we read about speaking in tongues, that's talking about a prophetic prayer language. That's not what's going on here. Verse 5. Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? These Jewish people from all over the Roman Empire hear a bunch of Galileans preaching in these various languages. Galileans were considered bumpkins. These are not educated people. Even Jesus faced this criticism from the religious leaders of his day, that he was an uneducated Galilean. How would they know these languages? Despite the miracle we then read in Acts 2.13, some, however, made fun of them and said, they've had too much wine. If you're walking with the Holy Spirit, there will be times in which people will look at you like you're under the influence. The Galileans had a reputation as simple, rural folk who certainly didn't have the opportunity to study languages from all over the Roman Empire. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It's not about power, pedigree, or education. It's about walking with him. I've mentioned before that I have an expertise in Mormon studies and I lived in northern Utah as a Christian worker for several years The year before I left to do that, I'd been meeting monthly with a group of young Christians to share a meal and pray. And one of the young ladies who attended the group was a bona fide prophetess. She had a heightened sense of awareness about people's motivations and desires, and God had given her the spiritual gift to speak precise, relevant truth into the lives of people as he sees fit. And at the last meeting, before I was set to move to Utah with very little money and just a carload of stuff, I asked the group to pray for my ministry out in the desert to the Mormons. And my other friend said, we're going to pray for that, but we're also going to pray for you to find a wife. And I was like, oh, no, 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 no. I was in seminary in Chicago for seven years. I was in seminary longer than Harry Potter was at Hogwarts. The dating was not magical. (laughs) I was tired of getting burned. I wanted to focus on ministry. Enough. The problem with good friends is they don't listen to you. So they didn't listen. They prayed for my work in Utah. And they also prayed for me to meet my wife. And my friend the prophetess had a strange insight while they prayed for me. She said that the Lord gave her a vision that I would meet my wife soon. And that she was afraid of the sun. That was weird. But I believe the Holy Spirit speaks to God's people through God's people. I want to respect First Thessalonians 5 when it says, starting in verse 19, do not quench the spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what's good. Reject every kind of evil. About four weeks later, I was on an online dating app, which I had used on and off for six years. Set, it, set the location to Utah to try to meet one of the five single Christian girls in Utah. messaging back and forth with a girl who reached out to me, actually, and she was living in Philadelphia, which is the opposite direction of where I was looking. And one of the things she said was that she enjoyed being outdoors. However, she couldn't really do outdoorsy things that often, because she had in the past few years, developed a rare autoimmune condition caused by sunlight. She can't expose her skin to the sun. And the girl I was talking to is now my wife. She's sitting at the desk, you can ask her if you'd like. She's she's watching your kids right now. She is allergic to the sun. My memory isn't as clear from when I told my friend about this later. I do remember her laughing in my face for a while. Partially to make fun of me, but also joy. She needed to know that the Holy Spirit was speaking through her in this way. It was validation for her as well. And Sarah and I didn't get married because of this episode. It also didn't hurt. And in a way, it did answer my prayer for effective ministry because my wife has made me who I am. She gives me direction and focus. She gives me a sense of outward responsibility that was pretty sorely lacking when I finished seminary. Not everything my friend the prophetess says is some special revelation from the Holy Spirit, which she knows. She's not perfect, which she also knows. She loves Jesus. She believes the Bible is God's word to us and that it gives us guardrails. She faithfully attends and serves at a local church. She wants to be in and act upon the will of God. When she speaks, it's not with ulterior motives. Those things taken together, check the Bible's warning boxes for dealing with somebody who's claiming to speak prophetically. Don't outright believe every single thing that someone who claims to come in God's name says. The Bible tells us to test the spirits, to test the prophecies, not to dismiss them outright. This is why knowing your Bible, walking with the Holy Spirit And learning to discern his voice are so important. Which leads us to the question of the hour. How can we know the Holy Spirit? I wish this was a message that I could free record and come down here and just sit with you. Especially this part. There are some of you in this room right now. You have never preached a sermon. You never will. And you can teach us all so much about this. I don't get to stand up here and speak because I've mastered the Bible, but because it has to some extent mastered me. God is not done with me yet. So as a fellow learner of Jesus with you, I submit the following. To know the Holy Spirit better is to know God better, and to know his leading in your life better, which begs the question, do you really want to know the Holy Spirit better? Are you really willing to adjust your life's trajectory to align yourself with the Holy Spirit's leading? The great evangelist and devotional writer Oswald Chambers said somewhere in my utmost for his highest, his most famous devotional book, that a reason we don't seek intimacy with God daily and ask for his leading is that we will then know what he wants us to do. And if we know what he wants us to do, then we have to decide whether or not we're going to do it. It is easier to say, I didn't know, God, than it is to say, no, God. So we can often be tempted to avoid the parts of the Bible we find personally convicting, as well as God the Spirit's daily presence. On the flip side are those shoes untied folks so committed to their idea of the Spirit's leading that they won't move without some sort of burning bush or wet fleece or pillar of cloud. One theologian wrote, an explicit desire to know God's will in a given situation is not always an indication of a surrendered will. The reason some of us are tempted to want exact directions about what precisely God wants us to do all the time is the same reason some folks won't tie their shoes unless God tells them to. It's not because we trust him. It's because we don't trust him. And we're trying to find a way to control our lives. We've decided to hedge our bets with God. But even Jesus said in Mark 13 that he didn't know the day or the hour of the second coming. Clearly then the Holy Spirit is not going to reveal everything to us. Jesus' response to this quandary is as simple and as complicated as this. Don't worry. In Matthew 6, Jesus talks about how people are often tempted to scramble and to store up resources so they don't have to worry about daily provisions of food and clothing. But in so doing, they begin to, in essence, worship money and resources. And Jesus says in response in Matthew 6, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Seek him first And this will free you from worrying about whether or not at some point in the past you completely derailed God's will for your life. Live for him. This is his will. And it will help you know his will. As your relationship with him deepens, he will at times reveal his direct leading to you. There's more. In Ephesians 4.30, it reads... Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. What's going on in Ephesians 4 is the Apostle Paul is warning the church not to live as though they aren't Christians. The Holy Spirit has sealed us. He indwells us. So when we choose to live like this isn't true and we sin by going our own way and doing our own thing, it brings grief to the Holy Spirit who lives within us. He can be in us and we in him while we are choosing to walk our own way. Paul also writes in 1 Corinthians 3 that Jesus is the foundation of the Christian life and that we build on that foundation. He basically uses a three little pigs analogy. What happens to the house built out of straw or sticks? It gets blown down. The brick house is the one that keeps the wolf out. And Paul says that when judgment finally does come, it won't be from a wolf with good breath control. It'll be God's purifying fire. And he says this starting in 1 Corinthians 3.13. The fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it's burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. Escaping through the flames. It is possible for you to baseball slide into heaven with your butt on fire. You made it, but you look all crispy. Some of you guys are going to meet Jesus looking like Wiley e. Coyote after he gets blown up. God has a calling for you, He has a purpose for your life. There's something He wants to heal you from. He doesn't just want us receiving stuff from him. He wants us receiving relationship with him and helping others to do the same. We have the spirit living in us if we are Christians, yet we can live as though we don't. You can be a parent without investing in your kids. You can be a student and graduate with straight C's. You can have a job and do the bare minimum to stay employed coming to church is not the same as coming to God. If you want to know God's will and discover his purpose and meaning for your life, if you want to walk and step with the Holy Spirit, good news, Paul tells us exactly how to do it in Romans chapter 12, starting in verse one. Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, So often we are tempted to believe that in order to know God's will and walk in step with his spirit, we must learn Greek and Hebrew. We must become overseas missionaries or we must fill in the blank for whatever sounds holy to you. The truth is that if you want to know God's will and walk in step with his spirit, it's as simple and as difficult as being a living sacrifice. To cultivate your relationship with the Holy Spirit, worship God when you would rather sleep. Pray when you don't feel like it. Find a place of prayer, whether it is in your house, whether it is in your car, or like the great Susanna Wesley, underneath your own apron in your kitchen with 10 kids running around. Examine the state of your inner life. Join a small group and share your life with others. Serve. Give. Look at the people around you who don't know Jesus. Ask the Holy Spirit who he is leading you to bless. What will you gain? The fruit of the Spirit. A life of purpose and meaning where you're walking in God's will and you won't have to worry that one wrong decision from back when has derailed God's will forever. You'll already be in the will of God. Lastly, if you're a Christian, you do have a relationship with the Holy Spirit. He lives in you. He is a seal guaranteeing God's deposit. If nothing else, if, ever, if you don't feel like he's in you sometimes, Your changed life is evidence that he is in you. Galatians 5, 22. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit... Let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. I consider myself lucky that I was not raised in a Christian home. Because when I read this passage, it is so obvious what the Holy Spirit has done in my life. My wife would tell you he's still doing things in my life. Back when I first met Jesus... I was not gentle, I was not self-controlled, I definitely wasn't patient. I can look back at my life and tell you when and how that changed. It was not me in my power. I lived in the same house with the same people, same toxicity, same job, same college. God did not change my circumstances. He changed me immediately despite everything. If you don't know God, you can through Jesus. Stop building your life out of sticks and straws. He does not promise to change your situation for the better, but he does promise to change you for the better. You can have the guarantee of eternity with God. You can be forgiven of the things you won't forgive yourself of. You can discover the purpose and meaning of your life. You can find a spiritual family to share your life with if you feel compelled by any of this, what you're feeling is the Holy Spirit. It is his job to compel you, not mine. Even so, you should listen to him. When I look at who I was and who I am now and how it happened, I'm confident that it is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. In the times that I feel far from him, in the times when I feel out of his will, I look at what he's done and I know that I am. He guides us and he leads us even when we're not always sure whether or not he wanted us to tie our shoes this morning. As we begin our time of response, let's take the bread and the cup and remember what Jesus did for us. The Lord Jesus on the night that he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Thank you, Jesus, let's eat it together. In the same way, After supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Thank you, Jesus. Let's drink together. The scripture tells us that whenever we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray together. Father, fill us with the knowledge of your will through all the wisdom the Spirit gives so that we may live lives worthy of you and please you in every way. May we bear fruit in every good work and grow in the knowledge of you.